The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined uh, once again, we've had you on once before, Galen, by Galen Druk, the host of the 538 Politics podcast, which is on ABC News. And we're going to be talking initially, we will talk about Trump, but initially we're going to be talking about the elections that happened in America on Tuesday, because, Galen, it was quite easy to miss these actually pretty significant elections. And there was a victory, was there not, for what every Republican is calling the radical far left in Chicago, the mayoral race, Brandon Johnson won. And then there was also a significant victory in the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, where I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Janet Prodezewitz. Prodezewitz, yeah. There you go. Defeated Daniel Kelly, I think it was. Let's talk, first of all, about the mayoral race, and then we'll talk about the Supreme Court, because in some ways the Supreme Court one's more significant. But Chicago is the third biggest city in America. So, so let's discuss that. First of all, how surprising was it as a result? It was very tight. And... Crime was a big issue in Chicago. It's been a real problem in Chicago. And Brandon Johnson did have a message that I think a lot of people would call soft on crime. And he has been, you know, he has, there are quotes of him saying that he supports defund the police and so on. So was it surprising that he managed to squeak a win? It's hard to say whether or not it was surprising from a polling perspective. There were a number of polls heading into this election that showed that Paul Vallis, the more centrist, tough-on-crime candidate, was leading, but he was leading by within the margin of error, so say three points or so. So from a statistical perspective, it's not surprising. But from the perspective of it appeared in the days leading up to the election that Vallis was repeatedly leading and we were seeing in polling that crime was the number one issue for Chicago voters, it does seem like somewhat of a surprise that Brandon Johnson would win. Now, at the same time, there are some other reasons that we shouldn't be surprised. You know, Paul Vallis had said things, you know, in the aughts that are something along the line of, I align myself more with the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. You know, Brandon Johnson and others campaigned against Paul Vallis as a closet Republican. And think of Chicago, you know, it's a city that's voting for Joe Biden by 80% plus in the 2020 election. So this is not the kind of city where somebody who gets painted as a closet Republican is going to do well, especially in such a partisan environment. Now, moderate Democrat is a completely different story. We've seen moderate Democrats do well, you know, across the board in the states, particularly in New York, for example, where I am right now, we have a pretty centrist moderate Democrat in Eric Adams who ran on a tough on crime message. But Paul Vallis was something of a different story. I'll also add that he was a sort of also ran for many years. He kept running in different elections. And so he isn't really 
probably the best candidate that the centrists or the moderates or the tough on crime folks could have put up. Uh, and there are some other issues here. It's not just crime, but I, that's what I would say at the start. Is I mean, The progressive movement has had quite a few victories in recent elections. You know, Democratic Socialists of America did back Brandon Johnson, so did uh, Bernie Sanders. Do you think they, a lot of people talk about weak uh, candidates. As you say, Vandis was seems to have been a weak candidate. But was Brandon Johnson a particularly strong candidate? Or is it just that the progressive movement itself is strong enough to carry these people, whereas centrists or even right-wing Republicans, if they have a weak candidate, the movement isn't strong enough? Yeah, there are a couple of things going on here, which, by the way, I should say, from a what lesson should we take from this election point of view, you should view this as a 50-50 split, basically, right? So ultimately, you know, Brandon Johnson won. But from a what does public opinion look like on the ground in Chicago, this was the closest race Chicago has seen in more than 40 years. So even given those circumstances, this was a very close race. Here's what we can say about the progressive victory in Brandon Johnson. So I think folks have known for a long time that progressives base is in general, I would say college educated white voters. I mean, we saw that in Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 against Hillary Clinton and progressives had struggled a bit to, you know, get more support amongst voters of color, particularly black voters and Latino voters. And we saw that in 2020, Bernie Sanders started to do better amongst Latino voters. Now, you know, one of the ways that progressives have tried to get more support amongst voters of colors is by running candidates of color. And so Brandon Johnson was able to piece together a coalition of one, these progressive college educated white voters who make up sort of urban cores and the north side of Chicago in this case. Think about Wicker Park would be a prime example in Chicago, but for folks who might be more familiar with New York, it's like the Brooklyn, you know, white liberal voter, for example. And piece that together with the south side of Chicago and black voters there who trust Brandon Johnson. You know, he was a public teacher. He was endorsed by the teachers union. And so for folks who said who for whom education was also an important issue in this election, you know, he was someone they could trust. And I should say part of the reason that Lori Lightfoot, the incumbent mayor of Chicago, who lost in the first round of voting, was rejected is because she went to war basically with the teachers union early on in her career as Chicago mayor. It resulted in a days long strike. And that was sort of an, an early point of Chicagoans being like, oh, maybe we're not into this exact style of leadership. And so ultimately, the teachers union chose not to endorse Lori Lightfoot and instead endorse Brandon Johnson. And as you say, we're not in a kind of general election environment, not in a nationwide election environment. And so it is too early to read too much into it because obviously the type of voters turning out are you know on teachers on education for instance in a bigger election you would have far more people opposing the teachers unions would you not for sure i mean this is chicago right this mm. is one of the bluest environments in america and so you only i mean yes there are republicans who live in chicago maybe you could say 20 percent of chicago is republicans are willing to vote for a republican mm. but i don't think Anyone should look at a Chicago mayoral election and, and glean all that much about American politics broadly. You know, American politics are in large part driven by suburban politics. The majority or at least plurality of Americans live in suburban counties and to a, a, a lesser degree urban counties and to a much lesser degree rural counties. So, yes, this is not, 
we shouldn't really take lessons necessarily about American politics broadly, but perhaps lessons about the Democratic Party specifically. Mm. And well, let's let's talk about Wisconsin in relation to that, because Janet Prozovitz, excuse me if I'm saying it wrong again, she won largely, I think we can say, because of abortion, because the after Dobbs, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision, I think I'm right in saying Wisconsin flipped back to a 19th century abortion status where abortion is illegal. And so that became a hugely motivating issue for pro-abortion voters. Is my analysis fair there? Indeed. Essentially, the attorney general has claimed that that 19th century abortion law is unenforceable. And so this is a case that's making its way through the state level courts in Wisconsin. In the meantime, however, abortion providers have shut down and essentially abortion is unobtainable in Wisconsin. Now, yes, that was an important piece of this election. This is in name a nonpartisan election, however, in practice, a very partisan election. So, you know, the candidates for Supreme Court are not out and out saying generally how they would rule in a particular case. But, you know, Janet Protasiewicz made quite clear that she was in support of abortion rights. Dan Kelly, the conservative candidate for the Supreme Court, was a little more opaque. I mean, I think that was probably the right move to make from a public opinion perspective, because you know, a total ban on abortion is not going to be popular in most states, let alone a purple state. And so abortion was an important issue. I should say a secondary issue here was redistricting, which for folks who are familiar with the more nerdy aspects of American politics has been an ongoing debate for, you know, decades now. And Wisconsin has particularly gerrymandered maps, I would say particularly in the state legislature that favor Republicans. So Republicans have a supermajority in the state legislature, even though it's a, you know, a 50-50 state more or less. Part of that has to do with geography, but a lot of that has to do with Republicans sort of getting their way in terms of being able to draw the maps as they saw fit. And so there is a current case working its way through the courts on abortion. So that was probably top of mind. There's not a current case on redistricting, but the assumption is that now that the orientation of the court overall has flipped from conservative to liberal, that advocates for, you know, anti-gerrymandering rulings will bring a case and presumably win now that the orientation has changed. Although, you know, the way that justice is meant to work is that judges will adjudicate once they see what the facts on the ground are. Yes, because Wisconsin is for uh, British listeners. It's a it's a purple state, isn't it? It's It's been a swing state for quite some time. And probably demographically, it's fair to say it's a Democrat state. But geographically, it's been very split. You know, I don't know that I would say that demographically. So Wisconsin is an interesting place. Actually, I spent a couple of years there working for the NPR affiliate in Wisconsin. So I'm pretty familiar with the place. It has been a swing state for a long time. It had voted reliably Democratic for decades. And of course, Donald Trump was the first to flip it for Republicans in 2016. Although his showing, you know, he won it, you know, in a very close election. Biden flipped it back in 2020, again, in a very close election. And now Wisconsin has become just one of the top tier battleground states in the country alongside, I would say, you know, Pennsylvania, maybe Florida, Arizona, Georgia, uh, Michigan, places like that. Now, demographically, it's whiter than the nation on the whole. So Wisconsin is about, you know, 85% white. Milwaukee has a large African-American population, but 
other than that, it's the kind of state where you would think that Trump could do okay, or a Trump style message could do okay, because there are a large number of, you know, demographically his base, which is white voters without a four-year college degree. Mm. Um, However, Democrats have sort of made a comeback. And I should say, even before Trump flipped the state in 2016, Scott Walker, who was a sort of more old school Chamber of Commerce Republican, pre-Trump Republican, was doing very well there. So he won in the sort of Tea Party wave of 2010 and quickly enacted a bunch of sort of anti-union legislation, for example. He was put to a recall election, won again, then won again in 2014. So ultimately ended up winning statewide three times in four years. Republicans had majorities in the state legislature. And ultimately, Wisconsin actually even voted for Ted Cruz in the 2016 primary. So even the pre-Trump Republican Party was doing pretty well there. But Trump does also have an appeal to those upper Midwestern states, sort of previously known as the blue wall that crumbled for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm. Is there a thing like in we have you have in Virginia where because of the expansion of Washington and Arlington and so on into Virginia, it has Chicago similarly expanded so that the suburbs are now a bigger factor in favor of the Democrats? You know, it's hard to say sort of into Wisconsin. Chicago is not a quickly growing city. I think you should fact check me that Chicago is a shrinking city. Right. And perhaps the suburbs are when it comes to Chicago, the part of the area that is actually growing. But it's not a boom town. And I should say that, especially the inner suburbs of cities like Chicago or Milwaukee, have become, you know, increasingly Democratic. So so that could help. The exurbs are increasingly Republican. So that's not necessarily going to help Democrats. One point that I should say in all of this is that it isn't just that the liberal candidate won in the Wisconsin state Supreme Court race, that the liberal candidate won by 11 points. And so, you know, no matter what we can say about the demographics or the geography or even, you know, this was a low turnout election, a double digit win by any party in a purple state is really notable. Mm. Well, I, I mean, that's particularly interesting when let's go back to abortion there, because, I mean, there are sort of pro-life Republicans now who think that Dobbs was, uh, in terms of the politics, Dobbs was a self-defeating measure in that it disincentivized pro-life voters, and it stirred up a significant pro-abortion movement. And I think those people are probably right. I mean, there are lots of examples in politics. I mean, I know American politics specifically. You can chime in on British politics, but voters are, are far more likely to vote when they're angry or dissatisfied than when they're happy or satisfied, right? You know, That's why we see oftentimes the first midterms after a president is elected, there's a big backlash because it's just more motivating to vote against something that pisses you off than something that, you know, you support, you're happy with. And so the win on abortion for conservatives created that environment for Democrats. You know, even though Joe Biden was in the White House and normally there would be a backlash against the incumbent it felt to voters on the ground like conservatives were still setting the agenda and getting big victories. And it created a backlash there. And especially in states where this was a live issue, you know, we have federalism in America. So we have a patchwork of laws across all 50 states. And you could look state by state by state in the midterms and where abortion was a live issue, like Arizona, like Wisconsin, like Michigan, uh, 
you know, like Pennsylvania, it's clear that Democrats did significantly better than in states where it was not a live issue like New York or Florida. And Mm -hmm. it it turned out that abortion will end up being a live issue in Florida. The Florida legislature is currently considering a six week ban. We'll see, you know, how that goes. And I think if you want to, if you want to judge what Republicans or conservatives think about the political prospects of, you know, their pro-life movement, watch Florida, because obviously Governor Ron DeSantis is an ambitious Republican who I think wants to win the Republican primary in 2024. And so, you know, if he's going to, right now, Florida has a 15-week abortion ban, which if you polled Americans, I would say is probably the most popular law that you could end up on. You know, first trimester abortion is overwhelmingly popular, like two-thirds of Americans support it. And then as you go through second and third trimester, you know, support falls to third trimester, like 15% of Americans thinking that it should be illegal in all cases. So, you know, Americans have a nuanced view of this issue. And it will be interesting to see if Florida keeps its 15-week abortion ban or if they go down to a six-week abortion ban and an ambitious Republican governor ends up signing that law. But yeah, Democrats are not happy about it. I should say here as well that when you look at polling, the people who are most motivated by abortion, Democrats, are people who are very tuned into politics, people who are generally college educated, perhaps upper income, folks who are not focusing more on inflation and the economy and things like that. In a midterm environment where turnout is lower, or in a special election, or in an off-cycle election like the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, those are the voters who are likeliest to show up. Now, in a general election in 2024, the the electorate is just going to be much, much, much bigger. And it's going to include a lot more people who are not just tuned into every aspect of American politics and following, okay, abortion is legal here, it's not legal there. You know, this is the kind of legislation that my state legislature is considering, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, these off-cycle or midterm elections are not necessarily indicative of what would happen in 2024. So I would say... Folks should hold their horses before they get too caught up in this narrative. But, you know, that doesn't mean we can't learn anything from these elections. Well, I suppose an interesting question is, given that the progressive movement in America is strong, getting stronger in many ways, you know, how is their relationship with Biden? How satisfied are they with Biden? Because there was a lot of anticipation that he would be too much of a centrist for them. And there was a lot of disenchantment. Has the Biden administration kind of placated progressives? Has its relationship with them gone better than expected? Do you think they could, a lot of progressives might be disenchanted by by the time 2024, November 2024 rolls around? You know, polling suggests that it's somewhere in the range of 20% of Democrats who say they're dissatisfied with Biden say that he's not liberal enough. Hmm. So the vast majority of Democrats are fine with his ideological orientation. I would say their bigger concern is his age. Now, yes, progressives are sort of the new kids on the scene. They are loud. They oftentimes live in cities where there are large media markets and access to journalists and so on and so forth. And some, you know, on both sides of the aisle, some of the loudest, most amplified voices are the most extreme. But I would say that in general, the Democratic Party is more sort of amenable to its moderate wing than on the Republican side. And while progressives, you know, certainly lob bombs and things like that at, you know, moderates, sometimes 
they don't really create nearly as many problems as sort of the, you know, the more conservative or Trumpy types or whatever would create for Kevin McCarthy. You know, a good example would be like Nancy Pelosi could generally keep her very slim majority in line when Democrats controlled the House. I think it has been and will be a lot harder for Kevin McCarthy. Yes. When it comes to Biden, like, you know, Marianne Williamson is out there running. Might there be some young progressives who support Marianne Williamson over Joe Biden? Yes. Are those the type of people who are very likely to vote in a primary anyway? No. I think the conventional wisdom at this point is that if Joe Biden runs for re-election in 2024, he will win the nomination running away with it. And the people who might be dissatisfied with his orientation, thinking that it's maybe too moderate or whatever, will be so put off by the Republican candidate that they will turn out and vote for Joe Biden anyway. I mean, I think that's kind of, for better or for worse, how American politics works in many ways that people end up voting against somebody as opposed to voting for somebody in many cases. When it comes to what Joe Biden has actually done, he was quite progressive, you know, at the start of his tenure. I mean, just massive levels of spending you know, child tax credit, things like that, that at this point, I think, get some blame for causing inflation in the States. He's moderated somewhat since then. And he also, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was essentially, you know, a green energy program, called for ending the filibuster in the Senate, which is not a very institutionalist position to take for somebody who was in the Senate himself for a long time. He's moderated somewhat this year. I think he has seen that if he wants to win re-election in 2024, there are issues, I would say, primarily immigration, where he just has to moderate because Americans aren't aren't happy with... And you can look issue by issue by issue in the polling and see what Americans think of the job that he's doing on each issue. And he's just, you know, totally in the basement on immigration. And Title 42 is going to be ending in May of this year, which has been... which is the law by which the states has have turned away many migrants during COVID at the border. And so I think the administration right now is preparing for that. And in doing so, implementing some rules that are from the Trump administration that Biden quickly ended once he came into office. So you can see him sort of making a U-turn there. And I'm sure we will hear from progressives that they are not satisfied with that when that happens. And also, he initiated some student debt forgiveness. How popular do you think that was with young progressives? You'd imagine very, wouldn't you? I think very, it was certainly popular. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was certainly popular. Um, I mean, it's kind of a funny move because it almost certainly won't make it through the Supreme Court. So in some ways, he will get credit from progressives for doing that. If they remember that by 2024, you know, memories can be a fickle thing. But then it won't actually stand as a policy. Yeah. I'm quite, I, 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 I you know, that's the conventional wisdom. I could be proven wrong, but... I, I don't think folks believe it will make it through the Supreme Court. So it was well timed just before the midterms, wasn't it? That that, that it was that it was uh, yes, announced. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, let's. We've done a lot of Democrats now. Let's do a little bit on Trump because I know Galen, you were in Manhattan. Tell us a little bit about your day outside the court. Absolutely. So it was something of a circus. You know, I should say anybody who is standing outside of the New York County Criminal Court in the middle of the day on a Tuesday is not representative of your average American. So they are either the press, the police, or, you know, a strongly motivated protester. I would say the the most average people who were out there were people, you know, this is downtown Manhattan. So people who were on their lunch breaks who just were wandering around getting a look at the scene. The park across the street was divided in two between 
pro and anti-Trump protesters who were, you know, making their voices heard and quite loud on either side. It was generally peaceful. There were there were a good number of protesters for a small park, but by New York standards, this was not a large protest by any stretch. You know, you I talked to some folks on the anti-Trump side who essentially said, yes, we think that Trump should have been indicted. Yes, we think he should be charged. But do we think this is politically motivated? Yeah, probably to some degree. And that ultimately, the more serious cases that they're interested in following and that they think Trump should be indicted for involve, you know, attempts to overturn the Georgia election in Fulton County, for example, or January 6th. That was more the focus of the anti-Trump side, because if you talk to, you know, most legal scholars, even this case in New York. So, yes, it was raised to a felony because it's falsifying a business document in service of a secondary crime. It's not really clear what that secondary crime is still at this point. And if there is no secondary crime, it's just a misdemeanor. And even if there is a secondary crime, it's a low-level felony. You know, it's not good to break the law, but I think most Americans do not think that this is, like, of all of the things that Trump has done, particularly if you don't like Trump, that this is, like, the most severe by any stretch. I think a lot of people are focused on the Fulton County investigation and waiting to see if Trump will be charged by Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor there. On the Trump side, we heard from folks who felt like they needed to be there to support their, you know, their president, talked to a lot of folks who were in from Long Island. You know, you heard a lot of different grievances that didn't necessarily have to do with Trump. Generally a view that this is the, this is a witch hunt, you know, it's it stems from 2016 and the dual impeachments and so on and so forth. You also heard lots of other things like chants about how there are two genders, you know, things, just general ideas that weren't necessarily linked to this specific indictment. Mm. And uh, zooming out a bit, I mean, the, the obvious point to make is that Trump has benefited in the polls. I think he he seemed to be having a little bit of momentum before all this started anyway. But in the last few weeks, the latest polls suggest he has extended his league significantly over Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis has faded somewhat. How much can we read into polls still? Is it still too early to read into Republican primary polls? And is 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 all this obviously bad news for Ron DeSantis because Trump fatigue is, is Ron DeSantis' ace card in many ways and Trump fatigue has sort of been put to one side for the moment? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer at this point because it's all just happened. And so we don't know what the stasis will be once all of this is priced in, you know, if DeSantis will bounce back to some degree. But it is clear that Trump has gained over DeSantis. And it had been happening over some months. But if you look at some of the polling immediately after the indictment, you do see like what looks to be a clear relationship between the indictment and improved support for Trump. Now, looking at the polling, as I mentioned in talking to some folks on the ground, a plurality of Americans think that Trump should have been indicted, but a plurality of Americans, so more Americans than not, also think that this is politically motivated. I would be curious to see if there's a different response to future indictments, potential future indictments, either by the Department of Justice or by the Fulton County prosecutor. I don't know. I mean, for Republican primary voters, Perhaps not. Perhaps it's all just um, more evidence of a witch hunt. But, it, you know, ultimately, Republicans do want to win. And I know that, like, vote, Republican voters get caricatured in the press as being, like, you know, 
sheep to Trump's shepherd. But that's not really the case. In general, Republicans do like Ron DeSantis. They're willing to break with him. They're they're willing to break with Trump. The majority of Republicans say that it's fine for Republican lawmakers to criticize Trump. I think that Republicans ultimately just want to feel like, okay, this person is still on my team. Mm. And I think at this very moment, they feel like, okay, the greatest sort of challenge, the greatest hurdle to the team is what's facing Trump. And so they're they're rallying around him. And also something that's happened over the past week or so is that all criticism of Trump has basically stopped from within the Republican Party all the way down to, you know, Mitt Romney, who basically hates Donald Trump, at least thinks he's not fit for office in any sense. And that can create a rally around the flag effect in the sense that when there is no criticism, you're you know, your polling numbers improve because um, people are only hearing, you know, positive things about you. I would be curious to see again if there's more criticism from within the Republican Party for future potential indictments. What does all the polling mean at this point anyway? Historically, polling in the first half of the year before the primaries actually begin is meaningful, but not, you know, ironclad. So folks should take the polling seriously. I think people should consider Trump to be the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination. But, you know, Ron DeSantis has polled quite well for a non-Trump candidate. And so, we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the second half of the year brings. Um, a lot of Republicans think, and this might be paranoid thinking, but I don't think I'm being anti-American saying paranoid. The paranoid style is still a factor in American politics. Uh, that they're being played and that that this is a democratic attempt to ensure that Donald Trump is the nominee in 2024 and because the Democrats really believe that they can beat him because they've beaten him in their eyes three times in two midterms and and a presidential election. Do you think they have any sort of a point there? Would you would you agree with them in any way? Um, So is Alvin Bragg doing this, the Manhattan D.A.? doing this to help Trump win the primary. That is that is a very tough hill to climb. You know, is this happening because Trump is an extremely unpopular former Republican president? You know, I don't I really don't know. I can't tell you ultimately if this is politically motivated, but it seems risky for the first time that a prosecutor indicts a American president former or current to be potentially through a legal theory that's never been tested before. I mean, it could be, bear with me while I do the paranoid theory. Uh, It could be that Alvin Bragg, you know, is perfectly sincere in his belief that Donald Trump should be arrested for these charges and so on. But that, uh, uh, you know, there's an attorney general above him, Letitia James. There's also, you know, the Justice Department above him, which is ultimately presided over by the president. I'm not saying that Joe Biden is whispering down to to the lower chains of command, but there could be a sort of a sense among democratic authorities within the Justice Department that this is no bad thing for them in the long term. So I should say, you know, the justice system, again, federalism in New York state is totally separate from the Department of Justice. So Mm. this trial, this whole system will be self-contained to New York State. There's no appeals process that can get it, you know, to federal court whatsoever. Yes, there are also investigations at the Department of Justice, which is the national federal entity that also touch Trump. And we will see whether or not he's indicted there. You know, I have to think that Trump is so anathema to Democrats that 
him winning the Republican primary is not worth it to them. When you, you know, this is from last December, but when you look at polling, you know, you, you might ask why I even ask this question, but it is interesting. When you ask Democrats, who do you want to win the Republican primary? They said Ron DeSantis. If you gave them the choice between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, they said Ron DeSantis. And if you gave them the choice of the entire field, they were more likely to choose somebody like Nikki Haley or say, I don't know. So I could speak to Democratic, you know, is is there like, is there a vast conspiracy within the, you know, upper levels of government, Democratic government to try to get Trump to win the Republican nomination? Again, that's like a really, really, you know, tough hill to climb for me. I also think that a lot of Democrats think that Trump does have some kind of magic, like his ability to stick. Like, I think that if Trump were to win the Republican nomination in 2024, Democrats would be shit scared that he would win the presidency. I don't think that they would sleep easy thinking that, you know, there's no way he could ever win. Yeah, he does seem to freak them out. That's definitely true. So um, what do you think his chances are now? I mean, as as, as you suggested, that Trump fatigue could return as a factor, but there will be these other indictments and that could eventually cause an exhaustion. And as you say, Republican voters have shown a willingness to leave him. Do you think that could increase? Yeah. Look, again, Republicans want to win, right? You One way or another, Trump lost in 2020. And even if you believe that the election was rigged, which it wasn't, Trump still isn't president. And so if you care about things like the things that Trump ran on, you know, taking a tough stance on immigration, taking a tough stance on China. I mean, Biden has adopted some of these things, but, you know, whatever the cultural, social issues du jour may be, ultimately you need somebody in the White House who agrees with you to further that agenda. And if folks see that Ron DeSantis may be a more capable vessel for those wishes... I don't see I don't see why they wouldn't be willing to support him because he's generally quite liked. But it is it's hard to, it it is hard to say at this point because we're in such unprecedented territory. Now, we will eventually get to a point where all the Republicans who are running in 2024 have jumped in. They're proposing policies, they're talking about the future, they're campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. And our orientation will switch, I imagine, somewhat from so much focus on Trump's, you know, either perceived or actual victimhood, depending on, I guess, where you sit um, on the political spectrum, and start talking about, like, okay, what do you want America to look like in the years between 2024 and 2028? And that doesn't seem like a strong suit for Trump today. Like, if you listen to his speech at Mar-a-Lago at the end of the day on Tuesday, It was truly just, I mean, I don't think there's a single speech that Trump has given in the past two years that got more attention than that speech, including his announcement, right? There was wall-to-wall coverage on every network, every cable network, every broadcast network for two days from when he took off from Palm Beach Airport, arrived in LaGuardia, you know, checked in at Trump Tower, left in the morning, went back to Mar-a-Lago, like just wall-to-wall coverage. So every, and and they were saying throughout the day, Trump's going to give the speech at eight o'clock, Trump's going to give the speech. And so like, if you were paying it all attention over the two-day span, you knew Trump was giving a speech. And it was in prime time on Tuesday, probably the biggest news day of the year so far, at least. And he basically just listed all of the investigations against him. There was not, they had there was no mention of 
some sort of agenda for, you know, 2025 and beyond. And I, you know, I would say that for the general electorate Republican voter, that's probably not what they're looking for. Now, Republican primary voters, maybe, but it's hard to say. Galen, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Absolutely fascinating to hear your insights. Uh, I do hope we'll get you on again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.